Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. I will broadcast today is entitled, Get Thee Behind Me. Today we come to the final message in our mini-series together from select statements found in the book of Matthew chapter 16 involving Jesus' conversation with the disciples about his identity. We first began the series as we considered his eternal sonship, and we spoke from this chapter, Whom do men say that I am? And You remember that people said that Jesus was one of the prophets, or John the Baptist risen from the dead, or Jeremiah, or Elijah, but the Apostle Peter spoke up, and he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that phrase, Son of the living God, communicates his full deity, his divinity. He is of the same substance and essence as the Father. Jesus is divine, and that's what that title, Son of God, has reference to. Similarly, his title, Son of Man, as is also used in this chapter, communicates to us his humanity. Jesus is both divine and human. He is completely God, but at the same time, he's completely man. And as we love to emphasize from Paul's writings to Timothy, great is the mystery of godliness. This is a very mysterious thing. It's something that we can't really fully grasp or understand in this world, but that's the truth of the matter. That's the identity of Jesus. He's completely human, and he is completely God. This led to a message based upon the words that Jesus said to Peter in response to his profession of the Sonship of Christ. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The reason Peter knew what he knew about Christ in truth, similarly the reason that you know what you know about Christ, is because God the Father has revealed it unto you. We don't know what we know because we are smarter or wiser than other people, but we know Christ because God has revealed him to us, and also no one knows the Father except through the Son. No one goes to the Father except through the Son, and no one comes to the Son except the Father which sent the Son draw him. So you have this connection between them as Father and Son, so that you know one through the other. To know one is to know the other, 
and you know this because God has revealed him unto you. The next message that we delivered was based upon 18, and this was the message last week. Jesus says, Thou art Peter, which means a stone, and upon this rock, the rock of Christ, his identity, the divine revelation of his identity, and as an extension of that, the profession of him is the rock upon which Jesus built his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. We emphasize from Peter's own writings that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, that we are all lively stones, living stones in the house of God, but Jesus is the foundation of the church. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, there's not another foundation that anyone can build because the foundation of the church is Christ Jesus. Today we move ahead in this chapter to verse 21 as we consider the next part of this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned, Jesus that is, and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. The first thing that we want to do today on the broadcast is simply explain this text, to present a basic exposition of this text, and just share with you the narrative and the lessons that you can learn because of what's contained therein. But the last thing that we want to do today as we bring our broadcast to a close is to give you a few takeaways, some things that we can learn from this that we can apply to our lives in a practical sense. And I would say that that's a great deal of what gospel preaching is. First of all, we want to explain the text in truth. We want to present it accurately and honestly in all sincerity. And then we want to give you God's people a way that you can apply this to your lives. Because the gospel is a truth, it's a historic fact that Jesus died, he was buried, that he rose again. But how this all applies to us, that is one of the most important things of gospel preaching, is to give the application, to give the sense of the text, and then apply it to God's people. From this time, the time of this conversation forward, here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus taught the disciples about his crucifixion. Now, what's so ironic about this, this was so commonly known, the fact that Jesus taught that he would be crucified, that he would be buried, that he would rise again on the third day. This was so commonly known that Jesus' enemies asked Pilate to put guards at the tomb of Christ after his burial because they thought the disciples were going to come and steal the body, and his movement would grow even more. Well, what's interesting about that, his enemies, in one sense, were absolutely right, because after Jesus was resurrected, now the disciples didn't steal his body, because there were soldiers placed at the tomb, but after Jesus was resurrected, his movement has spread through the entire world. Because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are people that believe in him all around the globe. After his resurrection, the word was preached in Jerusalem and then throughout all Judea, then up into Samaria, and has gone to the uttermost parts of the earth, as you read in Acts chapter 1 prophetically, and also as a command as Jesus sends his disciples out to preach. 
In Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66, we read, Now the next day, the day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that this deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch, go your way, make it sure as ye can. So they went their way and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. So Jesus' enemies knew that after his crucifixion, he had claimed that he would rise again. Jesus would tell them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again at the third day. You remember that as he was tried, that was one of the false accusations that people made against him, that he claimed he would destroy it and raise it in three days, which is not what he said. But these people knew that Jesus had taught that he was going to be crucified, buried, and then rise again. They knew that. It was common teaching. What's so bizarre And almost disappointing is the fact that though his enemies knew this, the disciples didn't know this, even though they should have, because Jesus taught them so clearly that he would be crucified, that he would die, that he would be buried, and that he would rise again. That's literally what we just read in Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and be killed and be raised again the third day. Yet after Jesus was arrested and crucified, the apostles lost their faith, as you see in Luke 24 with the two that were on the road to Emmaus. After Jesus' resurrection, he appeared unto two on the road to Emmaus, and he asks them why they're so sad. And they say, are you a stranger here? Do you not realize what has happened? We believed in this Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet. He was mighty. And we thought it was he that should redeem Israel. However, he was delivered and condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Now, Jesus had told them over and over that on the third day he would rise again. He told them he would be crucified. He told them where. He told them who would crucify him. Jesus had told all of this in advance. And if these people had been biblical scholars, they would have associated Psalm 2 with the crucifixion of Christ, which talks about the fact that the people and the Gentiles gather against the Christ, but he that sits in heaven would laugh, he would have them in derision, he would raise his son again from the dead, and as this chapter ends, Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. Psalm 22 speaks about the crucifixion of the Lord. Psalm 22 speaks about the fact that it is finished. Isaiah 53 speaks about the fact that he would suffer, but at the same time, God would preserve his days. Over and over, the Bible spoke of what Christ would go through. Jesus, in his ministry, over and over, predicted his death. And yet, when he was crucified, when he was buried, these people are completely oblivious. They were the last ones to get the point. Now think of the specificity of what Jesus says here. He identifies the parties involved, the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, and of course many of these were Pharisees. The actual council that tried him was the Sanhedrin, a council of up to 70 elders. Jesus told of his sufferings prior to and at the crucifixion, that he would suffer many things of these people. He would be arrested. 
He would be beaten. He would be tried in three mock trials. He would be lied about. He would be dressed as a king and mocked, scourged, and then forced to carry a cross through a hysterical mob. And then he would be crucified, which is where he gave up the ghost. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. He gave up the ghost. He also foretells his resurrection on the third day. So just fathom this. His enemies know about this. His enemies know he predicts his resurrection. His disciples had been taught all of this from the people, the location, the context and situation, and the end result, that is crucifixion, burial, and then resurrection. And yet they're completely oblivious to this as it actually occurs. Again, you see that with the two on the road to Emmaus and in the reaction of the apostles in the four Gospels. Verse 22, when Jesus tells the disciples this, from that time forth Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. Peter, in verse 22, took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from the Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Peter rebukes Jesus for preaching his own gospel. What is the gospel? According to 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is the message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus preaches his gospel here. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be raised again on the third day. That's the gospel. That's the message that we present. Peter, at hearing this, rebukes Jesus. Now, this word here, took, Peter took him, this word there means to take one by the hand and lead them away or to grab someone. So just imagine how Peter responds here. He takes Jesus perhaps to the side, he grabs him, and he begins rebuking him. Be it far from thee, which is to say, this won't happen. Don't don't think this way. Now, we can be hard on Peter, and there have been many times in the history of gospel preaching that we probably have been a little harsh on the Apostle Peter. Remember, this man had Christ revealed unto him. He is not an unregenerate. Christ had been revealed to him by the Father. He knew that Jesus was the Son of God, and he professed his faith in Jesus before men. This Peter, yes, he would deny Jesus three times, but at the same time, when they came to arrest him, he took out a sword and he attacked the people arresting Jesus, which shows us that he was willing to die in a blaze of glory for Jesus, but he wasn't willing at that point in his life to suffer martyrdom for the faith. There would come a time when the Apostle Peter would suffer martyrdom for his faith in Christ. But at this point, he stands in need of something. What is it that he stands in need of? Well, Jesus would address this in Luke's gospel at the communion service when he says, Satan has desired you to sift you as wheat, referring to all the apostles. But I have prayed for thee, specifically for Peter, that thy faith fail thee not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, the you and ye and thou and thee are really important in that passage, because if we just use contemporary English, we lose the fact that Jesus addresses a plurality, and then he addresses Peter singularly. Satan has desired you, plural, all of the apostles, to sift them as wheat. But Jesus prayed for Peter that Peter's faith would not fail, that his faith would fail not. Now, was it weak? Yes. Was it overturned a little bit? Yes. Can that happen to us? Absolutely. But his faith didn't ultimately fail. What a blessing to know that Jesus himself had prayed for the faith of the apostle Peter. 
because God always hears the prayers of Jesus. I would that the Lord would pray that same prayer for me and that same prayer for you. I've prayed for thee, that thy faith fail thee not. It was weak, it was battered, it was beaten, it was diminished, but it didn't fail. And then he says, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Because remember, Satan wants to sift them all as wheat. And there was yet a conversion that Peter needed to experience. Now, this is going to run contrary to what a lot of people teach in our day and age. While we are only regenerated once, we're only quickened once, we're only born again once, the vital phase of salvation happens but once in our life. That is when the Father reveals this unto us, as we read in Matthew 16. We can be converted many times in our lives. Anytime you turn from a sin, when God shows a sin to you or an error to you, and you forsake that, you turn from that, you have that change, you have experienced a conversion. There has been a conversion in your life. Now, Christians used to use that term in that way all the time. Someone might say, I converted from being a Presbyterian to a Baptist, or I converted from being a Catholic to a Methodist. And sometimes today, preachers scold others when they use that word in that way, but that's a legitimate usage of that term. We are many times converted from one thing unto another, and any time we experience this awakening to a sin that we have been committing or an error that we've been holding to and we change, as we turn, a conversion has happened. Peter was a Christian for years at the point when Jesus was crucified. And yet, he stood in need of a conversion, and he would experience this after the resurrection of Jesus. He would experience a conversion. And so, when you experience this conversion of which I speak, well, strengthen your brothers. At this point in Peter's ministry, he doesn't understand what he would later come to understand. And again, people are often harsh myself included, about the Apostle Peter and his behavior here and in other places. But if a dear friend to you, perhaps a mentor or a teacher, came up to you and said, in a few days I'm going to be arrested, or in a few months I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be tried, they're going to lie about me, and they're going to put me to death when I've done nothing wrong, you would be taken aback by that. You'd say, wait a minute, no, let's let's not talk this way. Let's not be this discouraging. Don't worry about that. Just have faith that everything's going to be okay. We would use that sort of language to someone who spoke in such a way. If someone came up to you and they said, I have just been diagnosed with cancer at stage one, but I really think I'm just not going to make it. What would you say to that? You'd say, no, let's pray about it. Let's get you the best treatment. It's going to be okay. Just trust me. It's going to be okay. That's kind of what Peter's doing here. So again, we beat him up and we're harsh on him from time to time, but he's not reacting very differently than many of us would react at similar types of news from people that we love and we don't want to lose. Be it far from thee. But here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus was born into the world for this purpose. In John chapter 18 and verse 37, Jesus speaks in response to Pilate, about his purpose in coming into the world. And it's always an interesting thing to read the interaction between Jesus and Pilate, a secular civil authority. Pilate had asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus asked him, are you saying this of yourself, that others tell you this about me? And Pilate begins to say, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your own chief priest delivered you unto me. What have you done? 
Jesus answers, then he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered unto the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And then Pilate asks, Art thou a king then? And Jesus says, Thou sayest that I am a king. Now, thou sayest is a way of saying what you have said is true. And so when someone asks Jesus a question, and Jesus replies to them with, Thou sayest, what that means is what you have said is accurate. What you've said is true. Jesus says, Thou sayest, yes, I am a king. But listen to this. To this cause was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Jesus was born into the world to die for the sins of his people in Jerusalem, outside the camp, as it were. Jesus was born. He was sent into this world as the eternal Son of God to die for the sins of God's people. We conducted a series at the close of last year about sovereign grace statements from the Word of God, and we emphasized the fact that the Father gave a people to Jesus for Him to save. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, as He said in John chapter 10 and John 17. He gave the Son power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as the Father gave Him. Over and over that truth is emphasized in the Gospel of John. Jesus was born into the world, sent into the world, to die for these people. And as he would say, should I ask to get out of this? Should I ask to be spared from this? Should I ask to be delivered from this? This is why I'm here. I've lived 33 and a half years in this world to die for these people at this moment upon the cross. This is why I'm here. Shall I try to get out of it? No. And so this is literally why Christ is here. Now back to Matthew 16 and verse 23. How does Jesus respond to the apostle Peter? He turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those things that be of men. Jesus attributes the influence of Peter in this moment to the devil. Who is influencing Peter to say what he says? Well, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It wasn't God the Father. It wasn't Jesus Christ. If it didn't come from a heavenly source, then what is the source of this wisdom that Peter is now engaging in? Well, the source of that is Satan, that wicked one, that old serpent, the devil. Jesus attributes the influence of Peter to the devil. He is the influence in this moment. And so what then do we make about this language where Jesus says, you're an offense unto God? You are an offense unto me. You savor not the things that be of God, but those things that be of men. Regarding the things of men, what sort of things do men esteem and value? Well, they esteem ease. They esteem prosperity. They esteem a long life in this world. That's natural for all of us. Jesus would tell the disciples later on in this chapter to take up their cross and follow him. That's a symbol of execution and a symbol of public shame. But Jesus tells Peter here, and the influence behind Peter here, that they're savoring the things that are not of God, but the things that are esteemed of men. The avoidance of suffering, prosperity, ease, a long life, etc. In this conversation, and in this subject matter, the things that are of God is Christ dying on the cross for the elect. This was given to him for his Father. And so, long life and ease and prosperity, that was not what God had given Christ. Again, for that cause, he was born into the world. Now, is Peter actually a devil here? No. 
Peter had Christ revealed unto him. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail, telling us that Peter already had faith at this point. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. It's the evidence of things not seen. If you have faith, it's because God has quickened you. It is of God in you. Peter's not a devil, but the devil is capitalizing on his ignorance and his affections for Jesus and his affections for Israel to discourage Jesus, and it did not work. Jesus would not fail. Jesus would not be discouraged. Peter is a good, godly man, but right here in his life, he is led by the wrong influences. So let's look at four takeaways as we bring our broadcast today to a close. Number one, Satan attempts to discourage you from what you are supposed to do. In fact, there are many dark influences attempting to hinder you from honoring God at any point in your life. In Ephesians chapter 6, we learn that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. There are invisible forces attempting to discourage you from serving the Lord Jesus Christ at any given moment. There is always kickback when you try to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and Satan is the ringleader in attempting to discourage you. Paul remarks in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9 that a great door and effectual unto him is open, and there are many adversaries. There are always adversaries, both visible and invisible. Takeaway number two, Satan sometimes speaks to you in forms that you might not recognize. Satan spoke to Eve as a snake in the Garden of Eden, and he is referred to as that old serpent, the devil. Sometimes people ask, is he literally a serpent? Is he literally a snake? Or did he take that form or speak through that snake to Eve who gave to her husband Adam, and he did eat of the tree which God commanded them not to eat? But as that snake influenced her, she violated God's law, and then Adam violated God's law and plunged the entire race into sin. According to 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan can be transformed into an angel of light. Isn't that terrifying to think about? He doesn't show up with red skin, a pointy goatee, horns, a pointed tail, and a pitchfork. He would be pretty obvious to identify if he came to us in that way. But rather, Satan appears as something appealing, and he deceives us. Satan can even speak to us in the form of a close friend, like he did through Peter to Jesus. Wisdom is being aware that he can do this. Number three, Jesus' face was set as a flint. There was absolutely no discouraging Jesus from going to the cross to die for his elect. He set his face as a flint, and there was no discouraging the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 7, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed." When Jesus headed towards Jerusalem, he set his face towards Jerusalem, and I don't find that to be coincidental. He set his face like a flint to go and to suffer for his people. According to Hebrews chapter 12, he endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. And then number three from Isaiah chapter 42, Jesus would not fail, nor would Jesus be discouraged. He would go to the cross, he would die for his people, he would save them from their sins. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, 
He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break. The smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Listen, verse 4 of Isaiah 42. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Because Jesus was successful, there are people today waiting for his word. People all throughout the world are waiting for the law of God to come to them. Might we be aware that Satan attempts to hinder us from what God would call us to do in this life? But at the same time, may we rejoice that nothing could happen to prevent Jesus from going to that cross and saving his people from their sins. He would not fail. He would not be discouraged. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.